Father, it's nothing less than joy to meet together with your people in this house today. We love being with your people. We're out on our own all week long. But when we come together and sing your praises, and pray together, and worship and give and serve one another, it reminds us that we were made for you and that we were made for heaven and we were not created to live upon a sinful world with sinful hearts among sinful people. We were created to live with you. And yet for this time, while we wait the return of our Savior, who will reconcile all things to himself because he is head and ruler over all. Until then, Father, we groan with all creation waiting for the adoption of the sons of God. And we battle with sin and, and self-righteousness and just plain old ordinary selfishness. But for these moments, Lord, help us to focus our attention fully upon you and for what you have revealed to us in your word. Oh, Father, I pray, be our teacher today and give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to his church and to the unbelievers who are here, perhaps thinking that they are good with God. Open their eyes, Lord, take the blinders off. Help them to see themselves as God sees them and to run to Christ for what Christ offers. Oh, Father, we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. God is determined to set his glory, his righteousness on display through the condemnation of sinners on the one hand and the justification of sinners on the other. Between these two opposing outcomes stands the gospel of God's Son, which is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the rest of us. He says to the Greek, but even after going to seminary, I can't even read Greek, speak Greek. He means Gentiles. This salvation, this gospel is for the Jews first and, and for all of us, because all of us need it. This is what the book of Romans is all about. Allow me to take a minute to review the main themes that Paul has revealed to us thus far. And, and as I do this, I realize that I'm leaving things out. We don't have time to re-preach all of that. So let me just give you like a 20,000-foot flyover very quickly. In the first two chapters, Paul taught us that before a sinner can benefit savingly from the good news about which Paul is unashamed to preach... He or she must apprehend and embrace the bad news of God's 
righteous and necessary judgment. If God, listen carefully, if God is a righteous judge, and he is, then he must judge sin. No, no. Let me say it this way. He must judge your sin and mine. Now, the way Paul presents this truth is striking. First, he speaks about God's righteous judgment against the nations, the Gentiles. He says in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Well, because they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. They prefer, instead of God, the fountain of living water, they prefer idols made of wood and stone over the true God who is the source of every good thing in this life and in the one to come. And we prefer, that is, mankind prefers idols, gods, that are made of wood and stone because they can be manipulated and God will not ever be manipulated. Therefore, their condemnation, that is, the Gentiles' condemnation is just. This is what Paul has taught us. The Gentiles are without excuse for their rejection of God. By nature, they knew God. They didn't want God. They didn't want God meddling in their affairs. They didn't want God telling them what is obvious to us but gets in the way of the sin that we want to enjoy. And so for this reason, Paul says, God gave them over to perverted desires and allowed them to suffer both the physical and spiritual consequences of their sin. In chapters 2 and 3, after prosecuting the Gentiles for their willful godlessness, he now turns to his fellow Jews with the same message. Chapter 2 begins with the same major theme of chapter 1, namely, with these same words, the words that he said to the Gentiles, he now says to the Jews, therefore, you have no excuse in fact, less excuse, one might argue, for the Jews than the Gentiles because they were so privileged, which is what this passage is about. Therefore, Jews, you have no excuse. Now, this was not welcome news to Jewish ears. It's difficult to imagine that it could be overstated how controversial this message from the Apostle Paul would have been to the Jews who are hearing him as he preaches it. You see, the Jews misunderstood their relationship with God. They knew that God had chosen them from the beginning. He chose them from among all the peoples of the earth. He rescued them from Egypt, bondage. He walked them through the Red Sea on dry land. He brought them to the promised land. He entered special covenant, a special covenant relationship with them. It was as if God married his bride, Israel. 
They were his chosen people. And all of that is true. And Paul doesn't disavow any of it. It's all true. It's all true. It's all, just read the Old Testament. It's all true. But it led them to believe that their Jewishness guaranteed their salvation. Paul's message to his fellow Jews is clear. When it comes to God's righteous judgment, everyone stands on level ground. All are sinners. Therefore, all deserve God's judgment, regardless of whether one is a Jew or a Gentile. Listen to how Paul says it in chapter 2. Don't just listen. You can just, I mean, your Bible is open, right, to the book of Romans. Maybe chapter 2 right now. We're going to get to chapter 3 in a few minutes. But look at chapter 2, the very end of, well, somewhere in, in chapter 2, the middle uh, verse 12, 2.12, this is what he says. For all who have sinned without the law, that's the Gentiles, what's going to happen to them? They will also perish without the law. Gentiles will perish. That is, they will be judged without the law. And, he says, all who have sinned under the law, that's the Jews, will be judged by the law. Now, there's some differences in wording here, different emphases, but the main point is, if you're a Gentile, you're under the judgment of God. And scandalous as, may, as it may sound, my Jewish brethren, Paul is saying, you too are under God's judgment, no less than the Gentiles. This is part of Paul's gospel. This is the beginning of Paul's gospel. It's the bad news. In other words, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, judgment day is coming. And for every soul born into the world, there will be a day of reckoning. Preparing for that day should be of the highest importance to all people. And preparation begins with embracing the fact that the only thing you have to offer God is your sin. And the only truth that matters is that we are all spiritually bankrupt and need in need of the eternal treasure of God's mercy and grace. On a personal note, I just want you to know that for me, these messages are not merely obligatory Sunday morning lectures in theology. I believe heaven and hell are at stake in these messages because of what these texts say. Heaven and hell are at stake for some of you who have been listening week after week. And I want you to know that I've been praying that God will use these weeks of preaching about the certainty of God's judgment to open your eyes to your need Namely, your need to surrender everything, everything to Christ. Lower your shield. Drop your defenses. Let go of your pride. Tear off the fig leaves. And throw away your precious idols and fly 
to Christ for salvation. Beloved, this is my great hope. This is my great hope as I preach Paul's gospel to you week after week. Oh, we have so much to learn and so far to grow. Can I just remind you what Paul's doing here? Paul is writing this letter to the people who are in the church of Rome. I assume most of them were believers. And he's not necessarily appealing to them to be saved, although he assumes that there are some who need that appeal. But for us who believe, he's taking the simplicity of the gospel message, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he's peeling it back so that we can see the inner workings of the gospel, the intricacies, the, the, the complexities of the gospel, how God saves sinners. That's what he's doing through most of the book of Romans. And so I'm just warning you, this is going to get pretty deep and complicated. And just pray for me because it, it's deep and complicated. So let's begin this morning by reading this text. And all of the words on this page are English. And as you're listening to it, you're going to hear in your heart going, hmm? What does that mean? What does that mean? And that's exactly what I want you to be asking. And you're not going to get all of those questions answered this week, but in the weeks to come, I hope. Romans 3, 1 through 8. Let's stand together in honor of God's word and read this text. Here we go. Romans 3, 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people have slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. Thus saith the Lord, may he add his blessing on the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Now I must confess this morning, as I've already said, that interpreting this passage of scripture is rather difficult, and um, you know a passage is going to be difficult when the first three or four commentaries that you pick up on this particular passage, uh, the first thing they say is, this is the most difficult passage to translate, or to translate into, to interpret in the entire book of Romans. Uh, probably the Jews 
understood every word of it and every nuance. And part of my job is to help you understand what was going on there so that you can get Paul's message. You, you want to hear from the author. And so I confess that, that this is difficult, but I think as we look at our passage for this morning, I think a helpful matrix for understanding Paul's thoughts is to view him as kind of a prosecuting attorney in the court of God's righteousness. In the chapters leading up to this part of his letter, Paul has presented the facts of the case, exposing the sin of, the, of, of Israel and calling for a just verdict, which God the righteous judge will infallibly render, for there is no injustice with God. Paul has made the case against the Gentiles and the Jews, but now it's time for the defense attorneys, for the Jews to raise their objections. The things that Paul has said are offensive to them. Now this is interesting because we know that the Jews are not actually participating in the writing of this epistle. Rather, Paul is arguing the affirmative case against the Jews and he will now, in the absence of his opponents, argue their objections against Paul's gospel. And then he will respond to each one of their objections. Well, you may ask, how in the world does Paul know what their objections are? That's a great question. And Paul knows exactly what their objections are. He knows what the Jews would say because he heard them argue these, these propositions these rebuttals time and time and time and time and time and time again. You may remember that Paul's strategy as a Jewish rabbi and gospel preacher was to go from town to town, attending the local synagogues as kind of a guest preacher on Shabbat, which is the Sabbath, and he would... In the synagogue, he would unroll the scroll of, of, of the Old Testament. He would unpack the scriptures, and from them, he would preach Christ Jesus, crucified, risen, and coming again. In Acts chapter 9, for example, immediately after meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road and having his sight restored by Ananias, he went to the local synagogue declaring, Jesus is the Christ of God. Now understand, he's only known Christ for like 24 hours. He's already preaching. Which is why, by the way, immediately persecution began. You remember, he, everybody was looking for him because he was already a scandal, and they had to lower him in a basket for his escape. And so here we have an example. All who heard him were amazed and said, and this is, this is reading right out of Acts chapter 9, all were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call upon Jesus' name? And has he not come for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? They knew who Saul was. 
They knew Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee, persecutor, scholar extraordinaire. And years later, by the way, when he began traveling with Barnabas, he preached in the synagogue in Salamis on Shabbat. He did it again in Antioch. Antioch, by the way, you think of you know, the towns back then, and uh, surely they must have been small, like smaller than Benbrook, right? Uh, not Antioch. It was huge. It's huge. It was a big city. And he gets there on Shabbat, and he preaches the gospel, him and Barnabas. And the people are enthralled. And, and, and you get the impression that there were thousands of them. It's like a Billy Graham crusade with sound doctrine. <laughs> Sorry, did I say that out loud? <laughs> it is likely that there were thousands who heard the gospel that day. However, the leading Jews in the city were outraged. And it was after this event, I suspect, that the Jews began formulating their rebuttal to Paul's gospel, which was Barnabas's gospel, which was Stephen's gospel, which was all of the apostles' gospel. It was Jesus's gospel. By the time Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, this book that we are studying, he had no less than 25 years of experience debating the Jews. He knew all their arguments. He knew them all. Some of them were crazy. Some of them were difficult. He'd heard it all. And having been a leading Jew himself when he was young, Paul would have formulated his own negative arguments against the gospel. And so, as we read this section of Romans, it's as if we're listening to Paul the Apostle arguing with Saul of Tarsus, who is the same man. But what exactly were the Jewish arguments against Paul's gospel? Well, in the text before us, Paul identifies four objections. By the way, I have all four, four of them in your notes. And uh, just regard the, you know, the second, the third, and the fourth. Uh, just use the whole page to take notes if you want. There's going to be some really interesting things here, but we're only going to cover one point. I mean, unless you want to stay until two. <laughs> so four objections against Paul's gospel. More specifically, these are arguments against that part of the gospel that declares that the Jews are sinners, same as Gentiles, and are subject to the same wrath of God as Gentiles. It is against this, this divine truth that the Jews take their stand against Paul. And each of these objections are presented as a question, and each of them are designed to make it appear that the gospel Paul preaches is an attack upon the very character of God. You understand the strategy here. If they can convince people that Paul's gospel that he preaches everywhere he goes is contrary and insulting to the character of God, they win. Now here are the four objections, and I am really simplifying these. You'll see the complexity as we go. But number one, does... Paul's gospel nullify Jewish privilege. 
and you're thinking, what does that even mean? I mean, when we think of privileged people, we think um, they are people who have more than everybody else and there's somewhat of a negative connotation to that. Why why would they be arguing? Paul, your gospel's got to be wrong because if your gospel is right, it takes away all Jewish privilege. How does that even make sense as an argument? We're going to talk about that today. And the second argument is this. Does Paul's gospel make God unfaithful? You see the, the attack on his character. Number three, does God's gospel make God unrighteous? And then number four, does God's gospel, did Paul's gospel make God unjust? And they would say, yes, 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 and yes. And for that reason, you should be killed. You should be stoned. And on at least one occasion, they did stone him. So let's begin our study with the first objection. Here we go. Does Paul's gospel nullify Jewish privilege? Let's read verses 1 and 2 again, just to remind ourselves where we are. Um, It strikes us as a strange question. So let's look at what he says. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Now we need to remember here that at the end of chapter 2, Paul stated unequivocally that on judgment day, circumcision will be meaningless with regard to their salvation. They were commanded to be circumcised all the way back when God entered covenant with Abraham. And then again with Moses, same thing. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant It was important to the Jews. It was important to God. And yet, Paul seems to be teaching, and indeed he is, that on Judgment Day, circumcision will be meaningless with regard to their salvation. Turn back one page and read Paul's words with me. This is chapter 2, verses 27 through 29. We covered this last week, but it, it bears repeating. Here's what Paul says. Then who is, this is starting with verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you. So so see what he's saying. Gentiles will condemn the Jews rightly in the judgment. Now let's continue. Will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but who break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, a real Jew, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. I don't know if I can make this clear, but let me give it a shot. Listen to me, you Jews. If the Gentiles, who don't have any of the privileges you have, they don't have the sign of the covenant, circumcision, 
But if they keep the law from the heart, they will be in infinitely better standing at the judgment than you. And those of you who have the law of God, and yet you don't obey it by faith, in love for the Lord your God, because the Spirit is at work in your heart, if you don't obey from the heart, it doesn't matter if you've been circumcised or grew up near the temple or have seen the Shekinah glory or participated in the sacrifices and the ceremonies. All of that will be worthless. All of it will be worthless. You merit nothing from those things unto salvation. Nothing. Okay, so do you see the offense? Paul's the Jews are saying, listen, your gospel nullifies all of that. Well, it seems to us that it just nullifies all of that. So Paul is saying, no one is saved by any external ritual. Rather, salvation comes, if it comes at all, as the Holy Spirit performs a transformation in your heart. Your Jewishness will not help you on the day of God's judgment. In rebuttal, the argument of the Jews goes something like this. Paul, if what you say is true, then the Jews have no advantage over the Gentiles. What advantage has the Jew? And what benefit has circumcision if none of it matters for salvation? In other words, doesn't your gospel nullify the value of circumcision? And doesn't your gospel nullify the very benefits that we have received from God as his special people? Now, when we dig in, into this, it's, it's easy to understand why this would be a major concern for the Jews. I mean, consider with me for a moment how how much the Old Testament emphasizes the unique status and privileges of the Jews because Yahweh was their God. Now, in order to do this, I need you to look at these texts because I want you to be stunned and amazed by them. I want you to feel the weight of what the Jews are arguing because they have a really solid point. Their conclusion's wrong. But the case they're building is really, really strong. And so let me, let me show it to you from the Word. And so first of all, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Here, Israel is with Moses on the day God established his exclusive covenant with them and made them a nation his unique people. It was that day when they were in front of Mount Sinai, Horeb, when there was fire, the mountain was on fire, and there was a terrifying voice coming from the mountain, and, and God told the elders and Moses, come up here. And uh, the elders looked at Moses and said, hey, you know, why don't you just go up and... <laughs> Tell us later what he said. They were terrified. 
But God wasn't there to terrify them. Yes, the fear of the Lord is important. But here's what we read in Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, this is God speaking. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all of the earth is mine. And let me say it differently. Israel, I love you. Not because you're lovely, not because you've earned it, but I love you. And here's how my love is demonstrated. All the earth is mine. Every nation on the planet is mine. But you are my treasure. You are my special people. I choose you. I marry you. It's something, isn't it? It's very, does, it does it sound very much like how Paul describes our salvation in Ephesians? With Christ and his bride? Very similar. And by the way, this is not the only place where we find God's declaring Israel, declaring to Israel his lavish privileges in their relationship with him. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. We were in, so Exodus is the first statement of the law, and Deuteronomy is the restatement of the law. After the nation of Israel had wandered 40 years in the desert until everyone 21, 20 years and older had died in the sand because of unbelief, they found themselves once again on the border of the promised land. The first time because of unbelief, God sent them into the wilderness. 40 years has passed by. God brings them back, not exactly to the same place, but to a different border bordering into the promised land. It's time for them to fish or cut bait again. And so they found themselves there on the border of the promised land. And, and here God reminds them once again how privileged they are to have Yahweh as their God. And we read this in Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. Follow along with me now. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens. Okay, so the other passage limited it to the earth. I owned everything on earth. Well, that's impressive. And God's saying, you ain't seen anything yet. I don't just own one of the planets. The entire cosmos is mine. The heavens of heaven. The heaven of heavens is mine. And the earth with all that is in it, all of it's mine. Yet... The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring, that's you, chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are now this very day. You are my special people. And I have wonderful plans for you, which you can hardly even comprehend. Again, we see this in Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14, here, God is teaching them how to live now in this new covenant relationship with God. 
If you haven't turned there yet, turn to Deuteronomy 14. I want you to see this. It's going to be verse 2. And this is really interesting. Because specifically, he is telling them why they should not cut themselves. As the pagan nations did. As an occultic ritual. And the reason they shouldn't do things like that is because, and he tells us in Deuteronomy 14 too, here's why. Because you are a people holy to the Lord. And by holy here, he doesn't mean necessarily morally holy because they weren't that. But holy in the sense that they were set apart by God for himself. You are a people holy to the Lord, your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. It's the third time he calls them his treasure. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, I choose you. And you know, there's so many other texts about this where where God says, look, it's not because you were great. It's not because you were mighty. It's because of my glory. I am out to glorify my name. And so I choose you to make much of my glory. So Moses is telling them, in the eyes of God, they have an exalted status and amazing privileges. They're God's special and unique chosen people. Again, in Psalm 135, verse 4, the psalmist declares, the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. And this brings a little perspective on things, doesn't it? What the Jews were thinking when they were arguing with Paul, the Jews weren't making this up. They had manifold biblical precedent for their belief that God had special advantages given to them. Advantages and privileges that he didn't give to the rest of the world because they were in covenant with Yahweh, their God. Now, the Jews' implied argument with Paul is that either the Old Testament... Paul, listen. Paul, if your gospel is right, think about this. Either the Old Testament is wrong or your gospel is wrong. God has said we have an exalted position and Paul is saying none of that matters. So who's wrong? Paul or God? And you can, just, you can just see the Pharisees going. <laughs> Debate over. I win. Paul doesn't have a leg to stand on. Who's wrong? Paul or God? You see, in the Jewish mind, God's integrity was at stake, or at least that was their pretense. They were not the ones responsible for exalting themselves in the eyes of God. It's clear from the scriptures that God did that. Their advantages were bestowed upon them by his sovereign decree. Now, let's return to the original question. What advantage has the Jew? So you see what they're, what, what they're saying. The Jews are saying, you're taking all of our advantages away. God gave them to us. You can't do that. Your gospel is wrong. 
What advantage has the Jews? Now, before we move on, let me ask you a question. Knowing what you know now, and knowing what we read at the end of chapter 2, if we were to turn back to what Paul just said in chapter 2, verses 27 through 29, that one's Jewishness cannot save them, nor can any external ritual or form, that true Jewishness is a matter of the heart by the work of the Spirit, how would you answer this question? What advantage has the Jew? And I would say, nine out of ten of us probably would say, no advantage. No advantage. Uh, Paul's answer, however, is more than a little surprising. Our natural inclination is to say, you don't have any advantage over us. The foot of the cross, there is only level ground, Jews and Gentiles alike. But that's not what Paul says. What advantage has the Jew? Paul's answer, much. Much advantage in every way. I mean, in all kinds of ways. You are such an advantaged people, even though none of those advantages will result in your salvation. What advantages do the Jewish people have over the rest of the world? Well, Paul says, many advantages. I mean, look at, with me at verse 2. To begin with, or maybe better translated, of first importance... The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The word oracle here is, is certainly not the best translation of this word. It comes from the King James, and I suspect well-meaning uh, translators were really trying to exalt the value and the preeminence of Scripture by using this word oracle. It just sounds like a, an exalted term, right? It's, it's different than, than any other of its kind. But the word oracle here, I would suggest, is, is probably not the best word because in the Greek, in the Greek language, the word here is simply logia. Um, all of us uh, here at the office, when we're studying, we use a program called Lagos. And it just means word. Lagia is just a different form of the word. It's the word. It's, it's, the, it's the word, word. <laughs> this word means word, lagia. It, it can be translated word, declaration, saying, or utterance. But the important thing to understand here is that Paul is saying that the first and arguably the greatest privilege the Jews received from the hand of Yahweh is the gift of his word. Scripture. The Old Testament scriptures. Do you realize that when Adam and Eve were created, they were perfect? But even in their perfection, they needed God to counsel them. See that tree over there? 
pay no attention to that tree. By all means, eat lavishly, enjoy the garden. I provided all of these things for your benefit, for your good. Enjoy, enjoy one another. Be fruitful and multiply. I mean, really enjoy life. But let me just count them. Here's how R.C. Sproul used to describe this. It's as if God would say, everything here is for you. I want to bless you and just, just take advantage of everything here. But on the edge of the garden, there's a big pit. And I'm just telling you, if you fall into that pit, you will never get out. Do you understand that? Yes, we understand. Are we clear? We're clear. And God said, okay, be back tomorrow to walk in the cool of the day. We'll have fellowship again. And so he leaves, and Adam and Eve run to the edge of the garden and jump into the pit. That's what happened, metaphorically speaking. They, they ate of the fruit. God counseled them, don't do that. And sin, taking opportunity, enticed them to do the very thing that God forbid them to do for their own good. And so God gave his first and greatest privilege to Israel. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 8, we read this. And what great nation is there that has statutes? Statutes, that, that would be laws, right? And what great nation is there that has stout, statutes and rules so righteous as this law that I set before you today? given you my word. I haven't given it to anybody else. You are my exclusive people. I give you my lagia. The very oracles of God. And Paul's argument against which the Jews railed was not that, that they, the Jews, had no special privileges. That's not what Paul's saying. Rather, he is saying that their Jewishness and their privileges will not save them from the just and holy judgment of God upon their sin. Nevertheless, that didn't suggest that there were no privileges. There were magnificent and exclusive privileges for the Jews. In fact, there were many ways in which the Jews were tremendously privileged. And when we come to chapters 9 through 11, I mean, Paul mentions them here as if, you know, it, the way you read in the English, it says, first of all, the logia of God. And you think he's going to give some more of the list, and he doesn't. He holds off on it because he's making a point here. But when we get to chapter 9, 10, and 11, he's going to give us a list. And let me just... You can turn there. I mean, you're in Romans anyway. Just turn to chapter 9 real quick. And we'll just do verses 4 and 5. What were some of the privileges? Well, we know the word of God was a privilege because he's just made a big deal out of that. But then, verses 4 and 5, to them belong the adoption. What's that? that, that, that that's not the Pauline kind of adoption, meaning individual salvation. He's talking about God adopting these people as his people, his nation. To them belongs the glory. This isn't 
This isn't their glory. This is literally, probably Paul's referring to the literal glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God that they first saw as they were leaving Egypt, following the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. It was the very presence of God. It was that same presence that was in the tabernacle and the people would come to it, especially at night, and they could see the light illuminating out from under the tent of meeting. And then eventually in, in Solomon's temple, the Shekinah came and, and settled down inside the Holy of Holies. And they could see it. David would say things like, how I love to be in, to, to be in your dwelling place where I can see your glory. Nobody else got to see that. It was theirs. To them belong the covenants. First to Abraham and then through Moses, and then through David. Nobody else got these covenants. Others could benefit if they came in and, and became proselytes, Jews who were not ethnic Jews. To them belong the giving of the law. And now we're back to Scripture, but it's all of the law. And to them belongs the worship that is the priesthood, the sacrifices, the festivals, the Sabbath days, the promises, especially, especially to them belong the promise of Messiah. What was Jesus, ethnically speaking? He was a Jew. No wonder Paul's priority was that the gospel would be for the Jew first. They were that privilege. To them belonged the patriarchs whom I already mentioned, and from their race, according to the flesh, listen carefully, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. By the way, it's important to note in verse 9, and startling to note in verse 9, that Paul was specifically speaking about unbelieving Jews. You had all this privilege, all of these privileges exclusively for you, exclusively for you. As a nation, even a nation made up of mostly unbelievers, they were blessed by God with incredible privilege. The inference here is that you don't have to be a child of, of God by faith in Jesus Christ to be the beneficiary of his goodness. Can I just say that in the opposite direction? The reality of God's goodness to you and the privileges he has afforded to you is no sign that you know him or belong to him. You say, well, I give thanks to the Lord for every blessing that has never saved anyone. You are not reconciled to God by being thankful you're not even reconciled to God by being repentant. It is not your repentance that saves you. It's the grace of God that you receive by faith that saves, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. And so the inference is that you don't have to be a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ to be beneficiaries of his goodness. 
remember, he sends the rain, the gift of rain. You think agrarian society, right? We, we say, oh, God, good night. It's going to rain all week. You know, Lord, can you just, I mean, we don't need this much rain. Listen, for an agrarian society, they needed the rain. And you remember what Jesus taught us? That God causes the rain to fall upon the evil and the good. It doesn't mean that the evil are saved by it. God, it is in God's nature to be good to the people that he has created. But that doesn't save you. Just because you are evidently a beneficiary of God's good gifts in this life, it is no argument that you will enter eternal life because salvation is not like that. It's not grounded in God's blessing, but in his sovereign grace. The atoning work of Jesus Christ, applied to you by grace, received by faith alone. And so the whole point of this text is that the Jews are uniquely privileged people. And the one privilege Paul elevates over all the others, at least here initially, and arguably is, is the greatest of them, and the foundation of everything else is namely this, the logia of God, the word of God, the inscripturated word. We have God's word in a book. This phrase points to the entirety of the Old Testament, when he talks about the logia of God, this is the entirety of the Old Testament. Lois and Eunice used to teach Timothy from the very earliest years, right? The inscripturated word. No other nation was the recipient of the inscripturated words of God. And this is really huge when you think about it because throughout all of Paul's ministry, Whenever he stepped into one of those synagogues to preach on Shabbat, he would preach Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Savior. And he would always make his case by appealing not to his experience, not even to his legitimate experiences, but rather to the Old Testament scriptures. If we had time this morning, we could go back to Acts chapter 7 and listen to Stephen just before they stoned him to death while he was preaching. You, remember, you know what he was preaching? He was making the argument that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he starts with Genesis. But before they could get to the critical part, they killed him. He was preaching Christ, Jesus Christ, from the Old Testament. And we see this again and again. Paul, I would suggest to you, heard Stephen's sermon that day because he was part of the mob that killed him, that precious evangelist and leader. And Paul never forgot. I proposed to you in the past and I will propose it again. 
I think Saul of Tarsus heard young Stephen preach from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ. Stephen was killed before Paul's eyes, but he never forgot Stephen's words. Why do I think that? Because Paul started preaching the same sermon everywhere he went. From the Old Testament. From the Old Testament. And then throughout the book of Acts, we find occasions when Paul himself preached the gospel. And the single most important feature of his preaching was that every assertion he made was grounded in Old Testament scripture, the logia of God. In fact, you remember that after the resurrection, when two of the disciples were walking the road to Emmaus, they were discouraged. They were just going home. They, they had been totally demoralized by the reality that this man that they thought was the Christ, they were convinced he was the Christ. He had to be the Christ, but they crucified him. He's dead. And as they're walking and they're talking about these things, Jesus approaches them and he, he somehow keeps them from knowing that it's him. And they were so confused by the events they had just witnessed. And, and then as they're talking, Jesus interrupts. Luke 24, verse 25. And this is what he says. I love this because he doesn't, he doesn't mess around with these guys. He goes after it. Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the, what's the next word? Scriptures. He interpreted, this is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, in all of the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. Paul, if your gospel is correct, what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. Because you, to you has been given the logia of God. You have the scriptures. You have the scriptures. Do you realize you wouldn't know anything about Jesus if it weren't for the scriptures. I would submit to you that that's why Paul says preeminently, first of all, your greatest privilege is the scriptures. And you might say, no, 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 the Messiah, the Messiah, the Savior is the most important thing. Yes, but you wouldn't know about it without the scriptures. I know our time is gone, so let me just give some application. You may be thinking, what does this have to do with me? To use Paul's language, much in every way. You too are an exceptionally privileged people. Even more so than the Jews. Far more than the Jews. Many of you have grown up in Christian homes. Some of your earliest memories are of coming to church on Sunday evenings where you were in cubbies in Awana. You probably memorized your first scripture verse either at your own kitchen table with your believing parents or at church with God's people. You have come to Sunday school your whole life where you were taught from scripture that Jesus is the Christ, your Savior, you have been in 
in our youth ministry, no doubt, where you probably learned to pray and, and share the gospel with others. It's likely that you were baptized as a sign of, of your entrance into the new covenant. Nevertheless, and hear me, all eyes up here for a moment, none of these things will matter when you stand before the judgment. None of these privileges can be appealed to as the grounds of your salvation. Can I just, can I just say to you, you are in danger. You are in danger of being blind to the reality that your privileges have caused you to think that your Christianness has made you acceptable to God. In the mid-1600s, a Puritan pastor by the name of Thomas Wilcox, who you probably don't know, wrote the following words. When we come to God, we must bring nothing but Christ with us. Any ingredients or any previous qualifications of your own will poison and corrupt faith. He that builds upon duties, graces, etc., knows not the merits of Christ. You must every day denounce as dung and dross your privileges, your obedience, your graces, your tears, your meltings, your humblings, your workings, your self-sufficiency must be destroyed. You must take all from, from God's hand. Christ is the gift of God. Oh, how nature storms and frets and rages at this, that all is a gift. And it can purchase nothing with its actings and tears and duties, that all workings are excluded and of no value in heaven. Beloved, this is not a message merely for the Jews. It is a message for every privileged American self-professed Christian who is alive today. Because we are so easily deceived and always have been. That's why we need the Spirit and the Word. May He be merciful to you today and grant you eyes that can see your need and enable you to fly to Christ for righteousness. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how, how much we take for granted, how blessed we are. We're even more blessed than Adam and Eve were in the beginning because they had God come to them from time to time to speak to them, but we have the Holy Spirit and the word. No, oh, Father, I pray that you would so move in our hearts as to cause us to be grateful for the privileges, but to never trust in them. And for those, Father, who are here today who have perhaps unknowingly been trusting in their profession of faith or their baptism or their church attendance or whatever, oh, Father, help them to see it, to repent of it all to repent of it all and to cling to you alone for the saving grace they desperately need. 
Lord, we love you and we praise you for speaking to us the precious and hard truths of God. Give us ears to hear it. Give us hearts to receive it, we pray in Jesus' name.